Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Melanie. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to the passage that was just read. If you still have your scripture journal that we handed out at the beginning, or maybe you've purchased one along the way, we are on page 18 in uh, this book. Now, in a way, this message feels a little to me like a no-win situation. I know that there are many women in the room who are very understandably thinking, here we go, back to the 1950s. And the reason you might be feeling that is because you've heard texts like this taught in a way that reinforces kind of um, male power abuse that many of you have been a victim of in various ways. Uh, On the other hand, there's some men in the room that are thinking, okay, here we go, I'm about to get a verbal pounding. And I've felt that way before because the trend, I think, in more recent years is to teach texts like this in a way that maybe tries to overcompensate by characterizing men as imbeciles, you know, just clueless, insensitive uh, gorillas. And I I think sometimes that's done by teachers like me and some of my favorite teachers. I've heard them teach messages that just kind of poke fun at men. I I think what they're trying to do is build rapport with the women, but they're doing it at the the expense of the men in the room. And so one way I can look at this is it's a no-win message. The good news for me is I am not here to win anything. I am here to teach this text as faithfully and skillfully as I know how and let the Spirit speak through it. Because I genuinely believe what we say after the scripture reading every week. This is the living word of God for us today. And that's true because the spirit is alive and well to speak through the text and help us this morning. Now, if you actually listen closely to what Paul is saying in this text, which includes placing him in his cultural context and then paying close attention to the words he chooses and the verb tenses he chooses, and we're going to get into all that. If you really listen, you're going to see he's not reinforcing a a male-dominated power abuse over women, nor is he berating men or either gender. In fact, what he's doing is he's treating both genders with great respect as human beings created in the image of God, and he's calling both genders to something far higher and more beautiful and visionary than any of us are experiencing in our relationships fully. I want to put this text first in the context of the chapter, Colossians chapter 3, one of the most marvelous chapters in all of scripture from from my standpoint. Paul talks about how because of the resurrection of Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, who put our faith 
in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that we've been resurrected too. We've died with Jesus somehow. We've already been raised with Jesus somehow. Even while we await for the, you know, literal, physical resurrection, there's a sense that resurrection's already begun. And so he describes this old humanity, how we were, and the new humanity that we are to become. And he says, it's like getting a new set of clothing. And two weeks ago, we talked about this. You have a new wardrobe. It's the clothing of Jesus. So put it on and look like him, act like him, have his scent about you. And then he goes on from that text to say, and here's what that looks like in a church community. That was last week. And Lloyd did such a marvelous job. If you missed that message, go listen to it. You know, this is Lloyd's heart was just spilling out of him as he taught about the church family, the church community, and what that means to us. This week is our literal family, husbands, wives, children, parents. But in both the church and the family, the idea is how do we live out with our new clothing? How do we live out our new identities? How do we live as resurrected human beings even now while we wait for the permanent literal resurrection that will be ours? Now, I'm going to spend more time than normal setting up this text because if you just come at it without a lot of context, both scripturally and culturally, you won't be able to hear it. You won't be able to hear it well. So first, we've already put it in the context of Colossians chapter 3. New life, resurrected life. It's about new humanity, not old humanity. It's about new clothing. It's about gospel. It's about resurrection. Second of all, I want to help ground it in a bit of cultural context. And to do that, I'm going to use an excerpt from a video summary of the book of Colossians by the Gospel Project. I know many of you in the room have not, are not yet familiar with the Gospel Project. You're in for a treat. Um, they have put kind of to an animated video most of the books of the Bible. The Colossians one is eight minutes long, and it's a remarkable summary of the whole book in eight minutes. I'm going to only play for you a one-minute clip. And in this one-minute clip, he's going to talk about our text this morning, and he's going to put it in the context of the cultural moment that Paul was writing in. And it's so helpful to see it this way. So let's watch this from the Gospel Project, or the Bible Project. It's not the Gospel, the Bible Project. Glad I remembered that. Paul then gets really practical, and he shows the Colossians what this new humanity might look like in a first-century Roman household, which was a highly authoritarian institution where the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife and children and slaves. Not so in a Christian household. Here, the risen Jesus is the true Lord. And so, in the Lord, the wife allows her husband to become responsible for her, and the husband is subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. In a home where Jesus is Lord, children are not objects but are called to maturity and to respect, and parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. Christians who are slaves are to honor their human masters precisely because they're not the real master. Jesus is. And Christians who have slaves are to understand that this slave is not their property, but rather a fellow member of Jesus's body to be honored and embraced in love. And Paul's walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure out right, the exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed 
almost beyond the point of recognition for any Roman living in Colossae. All right, we're going to stop it right there. Again, that's the Bible project, okay? And it's so helpful the way they explain this. Now, I want you to look at the, the, the cartoon on the left, kind of the character, caricature on the left. Patriarch held the power of life and death. That was true. In fact, in the Roman cultural context, the whole society was based around the male head of household. He was technically the only legal person. They literally defined a family or a household as the male patriarch and, and any um, women or children or servants that were subject to him. And just as it says, he had the power to do essentially whatever he wanted um, because he was the only one that really had any true rights in that society. Now, here's the point of this. First century readers, when they would have read this text that was so beautifully read to us a few minutes ago by Melanie, they would have raised their eyebrows just like we do when we come to this text this morning, but for an incredibly different reason. It would have been so progressive to their ears. <laughs> you know, what, what do you mean? There's, there's demands on the husband as well to love his wives, to put her needs above his own? That's preposterous. Encouraging fathers not to provoke their children? What do you mean? You got to keep those children in line, you see. And then it's going to go on, and we'll get to this in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about, you know, slaves and masters, and we're going to get into that too, because that's all part of this context of Jesus is the Lord of the house now, and therefore it should look different. Small point, and leave that on the screen for you, if you will, for a moment. Christianity, depending on the culture it's sitting in, can either be viewed as massively conservative or massively progressive. Isn't it interesting to think about that? And by the way, that's good and right because it shouldn't fit our political categories. Christianity is not left and it's not right. It's from above. And so it, it comes to, think of it this way, the, the church were a preview of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is not a, a political entity, not in terms of our categories. It sits above it. It transcends our political categories. So what we're going to dig into this morning is this idea that, that the household, the family, should look massively different because of the gospel. And by the way, it should not look different than just from a Roman household. It should look different than the households that are around us as well. We are called to be uniquely embodying the resurrected life of Jesus. And that has implications for us as husbands and for those that are wives and for kids and all, all throughout the household. All right, you can go ahead and take that off the screen. Let's talk first, again, our, our next point to kind of get us back to the text by way of introduction here is let's talk about why family life is such a struggle. Can we just all agree it's hard? Marriage is hard. Being a, a, a child and, and learning how to live under authority in a household's hard. Being a parent is hard. Then you get older and you think, okay, now I've got freedom. And you realize, oh man, there's still issues with my grown siblings and my parents and, you know, and then parents age. And it's all kinds of complexities with family. Can we just all agree it's hard? Why is it so hard? Well, I want to go back to an image that we put on the board a couple of weeks ago and just sort of name some realities for us, okay? We're going to talk about the old self and the new self. If you recall from a couple of weeks ago, the old self, this is who we kind of are in our flesh, in, in Adam, so to speak. The old self is governed by an old identity, our old, whoops, identity, okay. Our old identity could be characterized by, by lots of things, but I'm going to use just a few words. We are insecure 
in our nakedness, so to speak, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, we feel that we are inadequate, which is why Adam and Eve felt the need to cover themselves immediately after they sinned, and we feel fear. We are fearful this is just true about all of us in our flesh. There's a sense of insecurity, a sense of inadequacy, and a sense of fear. It's who we are. It's why I put a heart around it. It's kind of our core identity as sinful human beings. Now, what we talked about a couple weeks ago is your broken identity always gives birth to broken behavior. And so some of the broken behaviors that come out in our families, okay, and, I, and we're going to all be able to identify with these, I think, is this struggle for control. We try to control things because we're insecure. So we want to control our environment and control the people in our environment. The second thing that tends to come out is we tend to withdraw. We will withdraw. We get passive sometimes, again, because we feel inadequate to handle the demands of parenting or marriage or whatever, so we can withdraw. The next thing we do, of course, is we fight. And again, this goes back to the struggle for control. And then the last thing, and of course it doesn't happen in this order, but we blame. And all of these things are true about all of our families in various context. They were true about the first family. As soon as sin entered into the world, all of those things were true with Adam and Eve. There was a desire to control, to withdraw. They fought. They blamed one another for their sin. Uh, Sandra Richter is an Old Testament scholar, and she wrote a marvelous book called The Epic of Eden. And in this, she talks about the consequences of the fall on human relationships. The, the book covers a lot more than that, but she spends a chapter on this. And here's what she writes about the relationship between Adam and Eve and how it was broken when sin entered the world. Whereas Adam and Eve's relationship had been all that they could need or want in Eden— with the fall, this ideal partnership is transformed into the competitive grappling of two hungry souls. A relationship that should have been characterized by mutual self-sacrifice, productivity, and joy will create instead the deepest of frustration and pain. There is not a marriage on this planet that has not felt the aftershock of this curse. I would add, not only has every marriage felt the aftershock of this curse, every family has felt the aftershock of this curse. Think about how the competitive grappling of souls played out with Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel, led to murder. The literal brokenness of this family. So one of sin's first and most devastating effects, and guys, this is a really big deal. This is true scripturally, and it's just true right today. I mean, you don't have to even know the Bible to know this is true. One of sin's first and most devastating effects was to wreck the family, to destroy the family. And so broken identity, which gives birth to broken behavior, finally plays out with some broken realities. And some, what, what happens is the blame, the fighting, the withdrawing, the controlling leads to deception, leads to disunity, and ultimately always leads to separation of some kind. Maybe it's literal separation between families, Maybe it's emotional separation. By the way, separation in Scripture is very closely connected with death. 
It's a disunity, a disintegration, a separation. So death is brokenness. Death is separation in our relationships with God, each other, and ultimately our own bodies. Now, we're all too familiar with those things. All of us are. However, this is where we get to the good news. The message of Colossians 3 is that there's hope. How is there hope? Well, there can only be hope if your identity is transformed. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So this is so miraculous. He says, listen, transformation is possible. Transformation is possible. How are we transformed to be a new self? To have a new identity? Well, it happens in Jesus Christ. In his life, in his death, his resurrection, which Paul has already been talking about. This is Colossians chapter 3. It's resurrection. I just got a disconnected message, so it's okay now, but it may not work in a minute. If, if, if that's the case, we've got a backup plan. All right, so the old self transformed by Jesus leads to, yeah, there it goes. All right, I'm going to turn this uh, pleasant little voice off that's telling me disconnected, disconnected. There she goes. All right, we're going to go to plan B. New self over here on the right. Just like the old self was governed by an old identity, the new self is governed by a new identity, which you receive when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me explain. You are now, according to Colossians 3 verse 12, chosen. You are now holy. And you are now loved. So no longer insecure, inadequate, and fearful. You're now chosen, holy, and loved. That's the transformation of the gospel. You might not feel like it all the time, but this is what Paul is saying is true of you in the scripture. Now what you're going to see is Paul's then going to say, guess what? This old identity, is a new identity, is going to give birth to some new behavior in your family. And he's going to talk about these things. I'm going to write them kind of as we go, but there's going to be four specific behaviors that are deeply contrasting with control, withdrawal, fight, and blame. There's going to be four new behaviors that flow outward of our new identities. That's where we're going to go in this text. So let us now reread it, and then we'll talk about it more specifically. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, here's what I want you to hear, and, and this, this may relieve some tension for some of you in the room. It, it may stir some tension for some of you in the room. The instructions in these verses make no sense outside of a heart that has been transformed by the love of God. They make no sense apart from someone believing the new identity. They are chosen, they are holy, they are loved. Another way to say it is this, this is not a text for unconverted people. It's also, and this is a big deal for us, not a text for a Christian to try to live out apart from deep understanding and belief in their new identity in Jesus Christ. So it's not until you've learned to rest in the gospel and allowed its true and simple message to penetrate your heart, you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved. It's not until then that you can understand how you might live out that identity as a wife, as a husband, as a parent, as a child. 
So we'll come back to the words. We'll get there. We'll talk about submit. You know, we'll talk about all these things. But let me first talk about your identity. Again, you are chosen. That means you didn't come to God. He came to you. That means you have nothing good to offer him except your neediness, except your brokenness. At some point in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you threw yourself at the mercy of God. And if you understood the gospel at that moment, you said, I'm bringing nothing to this equation. It is all grace. You are chosen. Not through any effort of your own. You are chosen because you are his. Do you believe that? Second of all, you are holy doesn't mean you're perfect. You're not a perfect wife. You're not a perfect husband. You're not a perfect child. You're not a perfect father. You're not a perfect anything. But you've been given Christ's perfection. It has been placed on you like a cloak. It covers you. It defines you now. And holy means to be set apart. You were set apart for sacred use. That's what the word holy actually means. You and your family that you're a part of because you're in it as a recreated being, has been set apart for sacred use. You are holy. Do you believe that? Finally, you are loved. This is the simplest, but maybe the most difficult thing to believe of all. Deeply believing that you are loved by your creator will utterly transform you. Here's why. 1 John 4.18, the disciple John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear or perfect love casts out fear. Now, there is no perfect love apart from God, but God is love, according to John in the, the same book. So if God is love and his love is perfect and his love is on you, then God's perfect love will eliminate your fear, will chase away your fear. You see, this fear, which is a core part of your identity and explains so much of your negative behavior. So what does God's perfect love do? It eliminates fear. When you start living with absolutely no fear, you're a completely different human being. In all kinds of ways, in all kinds of contexts, that's just true. You are loved. Perfect love of your creator on you. You are chosen. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You are holy. It's not about you. It's about Christ. You are loved. The degree that you are able to believe and rest in that is the degree that you will be able to start to imagine what it looks like to live that out as a wife or a husband or a child or a father. Now, we dive into the specifics of our text. Let's take these first two together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We take these together because they're meant to go together. Guys, this is a big deal. The New Testament never separates the two. It never says, wives, submit to your husbands without saying, husbands, sacrificially love your wives. It never calls husbands to sacrificially love their wives without talking about the wife's response to that, you see. They're, they're meant to go together. So we have the first two outward behaviors of a new identity in Christ lived out in a family family, submit and love. That's where we've gotten so far. Okay, now we need to talk about these, don't we? And, and, and I know this is where we're going to the, the lean into some tension. Um, a few things to point out about Paul's instructions here. 
The first is that all of this is built on the foundation of equality and oneness in Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul is at his most progressive and his most provocative in his cultural context. Galatians 3.28, Paul, the same author of Colossians, writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Did you hear how like mind-bending that would have been in that culture and still is? In our culture today, that's the first thing. It's built on the foundation of complete equality and oneness in Jesus Christ. Second, the word submit is in the middle voice. You can't see this as well in English, but you can see it in Greek. That implies a voluntary submission. This was also countercultural. And that day, the wives didn't have a choice. Paul is saying, wives, choose to submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, you see. This is very different, by the way, from wives obey your husbands. Did you know the Bible never tells wives to obey their husbands? The Bible gets accused of that all the time. It never says that. Paul is saying, choose to willingly come under a, a leadership. And I know that's still hard. It doesn't take away all, all, all the, the, the struggle, the tension in the room, but I want you to see it's different than how that culture would have been talking about it. David Garland, um, he wrote a really helpful uh, commentary in Colossians. He said this, Paul's verb choice makes the wife's submission her willing choice, not some universal law that ordains masculine dominance. Third, the family structure, this is the most important one, the family structure is placed in the context of an overarching allegiance to Jesus Christ. All submit to Jesus. Now, we've been putting a box around every direct reference to Jesus Christ in this book. There's 63 or 64 in just 95 verses. You're going to see two in our text today. The first is in verse 18. So go ahead and put a box around it if you want. Wives, submit your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's Jesus Christ that's being referenced there. The second, let's go ahead and mark it up too while we're, while we're at this, is in verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. We'll come back to that verse in a little bit. So here's what I want you to see, that, that these family instructions are rooted in identity in Christ, as is fitting the Lord. Wives, you're ultimate, you don't have allegiance to your husband in that sense. You have allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and your allegiance to Jesus Christ, you share with your husband who also has allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is why I think it's so helpful that the, the, the Bible project did with that image that shows Jesus Christ like this. Jesus is the Lord of the home. He's the true patriarch. All parties are under his love, his protection, his authority. And so understanding that can free up the members of the household to exercise their freedom and their responsibilities under a higher order. Every member of the family is called to submit to Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about how the leadership of Jesus plays its way out in the home through unique roles in the marriage. And there I've said it, haven't I? Because you know, that's where, you know, that's where people want to wrestle with this. And, and I, I get the tension. Um, the real issue is, is the Bible really say that husbands and wives have unique roles? Equal value, but unique roles? Is that what the Bible teaches? And, and, and we would say it does. Now, I want to give you an illustration. 
No illustration is perfect. No analogy is perfect. This one's going to break down at some point, as all do. But this has been really helpful for me as I've thought about my role in my marriage and as Jody's thought about her role and, and we talked about it together. And, and here it is. Um, Jody and I will celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary in a couple of months. And so about 17, 18 years ago, it was like right after we were, were married, maybe a year or two in our marriage, I gave my wife a gift that I would soon come to regret. Ballroom dancing lessons. Now, uh, you have to know this, um, Jody has a bit of a dancing background, and she'd been asking for this, and I'd been reluctant, right? Because I'm, whatever the opposite of a dancer is, that's what I am. Uh, and I knew I was going to be terrible, and sure enough, I was right. You know, the first three or four lessons were just an unmitigated disaster. I was so insecure of, of doing something that I wasn't good at, that, that I didn't like, and that I felt like I was like a fool in front of all these other people dancers. I was so insecure that all I wanted to do was disengage, okay? So my insecurity led me to withdraw. And the more I withdrew, the worse the dance was because I'm actually called to lead in a ballroom dance, not withdraw, right? Now, Jody, for her end, she had some dancing backgrounds. This is exactly what she wanted. And so she's all over that. And so she knows the steps I don't know. She's trying to teach them to me. She's basically leading me. And she's being sweet about it, but she's also getting really frustrated because she kept trying to lead me and I kept withdrawing. Just like, what time is it? Oh, we've got 60 seconds left. I think we should call it an early night, you know? That was my attitude. Now, this did not draw us closer. <laughs> uh, but, but I started thinking about this, right? And, and here's what I realized. Ballroom dancing doesn't work when the male refuses to lead and the female keeps trying to lead. Because it's just not designed for that. And I don't know if you like ballroom dancing or not, but that's just true about this kind of dancing. The design of the dance requires the male partner to take the lead. But here's the thing, guys. His purpose is not to show off. His purpose is not to dominate his partner. His purpose is to create something beautiful together. And even more interestingly, the purpose of the male lead in, in the dance, as I understand it, is, is to put the flourish put the emphasis on the female, to spin her around, to lift her up, to draw the audience's attention to her, to emphasize her grace, emphasize her beauty. He often wears black to sort of disappear in the background. She wears a bright color, a beautiful dress, you see. Dancing is impossible as long as there is struggle for control. This is so true in marriage, so true in marriage. A marriage relationship is like a dance designed by God in which husband and wife learn to take steps together with great grace and through their distinct yet equally valuable roles, together they put on display the glory of God. Now, let me just talk to husbands for a second. One thing that's probably true about your wife is she would love you to lead the dance but it can't be about you. As long as you're caught up in your own insecurity or your own ego or your own desire to control and get what you want out of the relationship, you can't lead. The good news, men, is that should actually free you up that it's not about you. If someone would have told me in my ballroom dancing class, Rob, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about your wife. You gave this gift to her for her and you're ruining it through your insecurity. Get over yourself. Learn the dance. Lead the dance. Wives, if I could speak to you for a moment, if you would allow me, and I don't presume that that is easy for all. 
one thing that's probably true about your husband, but is really difficult for him to admit, is that he feels completely inadequate to lead the dance. He needs your help. So here's what I would think God might say to us as husbands and wives, and and I'm taking this from Colossians 3 and also Ephesians 5, which Paul talks even more detail about what it means to submit and love. I think to husbands, he might say this. Husbands, God would say, I've joined you to a woman that is so precious to me, and I'm calling you to love her unconditionally and sacrificially because that's how Jesus loves you. I'm calling you men to lay down your life for her good and her safety and her flourishing. And here's the key, men. To do that, you will have to entrust to me, this is God speaking, you'll have to entrust to me your own deepest needs, your own deepest desires, so that you can be free to lay yourself down for your wife. Your needs, your desires have to go to the cross and you will find a satisfied soul in joy so that you can lay yourself down. Now, wives, this is what I I think God might say to you based on this passage and others. He might say to wives, I've given your husband a job to do and he doesn't think he can do it. I'm telling you, he doesn't. Will you help him? Will you, first of all, encourage his leadership, you know? Not not in a a snide remark way or a berating way. It's like, why can't you be like some other husband? Why, you know, but 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 can you encourage his leadership? And number two, can you allow yourself to be led? Can can you ease off on your need to control enough because you're putting your needs and desires in Christ's hands and in a sense dying to yourself too? So you can do this dance together. Will you entrust to me, God would say, your own deepest needs and desires so you can be free to come alongside your husband in support and encouragement? Is any of that easy? Oh no. Oh no. Are we called to something much higher than we've currently been living? Yes. Yes. Husbands, yes. And wives, yes. Now we could spend so much more time on this. I kind of wish we could. But, but I want to finish the text. We'll spend less time on the next two, but they matter as well. Let's look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Here's another outward behavior born from our new identity in Christ. So we have submit, we have love, now we have obey. And again, these are all in the context of specific familial roles, right? Children obey. He's not saying wives obey. He's saying children obey. Now, I want to talk to the children in the room. And I want to first of all say, Paul's not talking about just little kids. Like when we hear children, sometimes we think of like little kids. You know, in, in this context, a child is anyone that's still in the household of the parents. So, so um, Uh, children and and young men and women in the room, if you're still living at home and dependent upon a mom or dad or both your parents for support, you are in this category. And here's what I want to say to you all, if I could address you directly. First of all, you are a unique and distinct individual, equal in value to all other members of your household, including your parents. I don't care how old you are some little kids in the room, you are a unique and distinct and valuable individual. Don't miss the significance of you being addressed directly in this text. Because here's the deal. Most governments and cultures throughout history would not talk to you individually, distinctively. They wouldn't recognize you as a valuable member of society. God does. In the body of Christ, you bring your gifts and contributions to the table just like I do and Lloyd does and your parents do and all of us in here. That's number one. 
Don't underestimate your own value and your own dignity and your own importance. Number two, this is the season of your life to learn one of the most important lessons you will ever learn, and that is how to live well under authority. That is one of the most important lessons a human being ever learns, and this is the season for you to learn it well. Here's the good news and bad news, depending on how you look at it. You will never graduate from being under authority. You won't ever. I don't care how old you get, what kind of career you have, how much money you make, how much power you accumulate. You might own a company. You might own 80 companies. You will never graduate from living under authority in various places. You, you live under a governmental authority. You will always, always live under God's authority, just as we were designed to. Human beings were not made to be autonomous creatures. We're designed to live under the authority of a loving father. This is far from a bad thing. If you are completely autonomous, kids, young adults, and, and even adults, you would destroy yourself so fast <laughs> and others around you because you'd make a terrible God. So would I. So I'm going to close with this for children, students in the room. Becoming a fully flourishing human being does not mean being free from authority, but rather learning to express your individuality and find freedom by living well under authority. This is a lesson you must learn, and you will learn it first and best under Christ's authority mediated by your parents in your home. Finally, the final instruction in our passages for fathers you know, Paul could have said parents in general, and he, he addresses parents in other passages, but in this particular text, he addresses fathers particularly. I think that's interesting. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, we could dig into the word provoke, but the primary idea here is that we should be a source of encouragement, not discouragement to our children. That's what it says. So they do not become discouraged. So I, I think the, the, the command here is that we encourage them. That's the final behavior that Paul mentions that will be birthed out of our new identity. We will encourage our children. Think of it this way. Most of the sharp edges in our parenting flow out of our own insecurities. Isn't that true and right? Um, God ambushed me this week because he knew I was going to teach this passage. <laughs> and like four days ago, guys, I just had one of the worst parenting moments in, in, my, in my life. I mean, I'm dead serious. I'm like, no accidents in this. Well, I'm not blaming God for my sin. Let me be careful here. <laughs> but one of, one of my daughters... Um, well, let me just say, I responded to her in an attempt to correct her. I responded to her in a way that was so harsh and so sharp and so over the top. It was like I came at her with blunt force, okay? Now, I thought about it later because I felt terrible. And I, and I went back and had a conversation with her where I was able to apologize. And, and she accepted it. And, and she apologized for some things too, which is grace, and I was thinking about it later. I was like, why did I, re why did I respond that way? What was exposed in me? Guys, it was a deep sense of my own insecurity, my own inadequacy. Because at that moment as a dad, I was feeling a little like something was out of control. <laughs> and I don't like out of control, all right? I went straight to control and it came down with boom, 
It's like, get in your place. Do you see? It was actually first the inward sense of failure and the inward sense of being out of control in me that caused that to flow out out of me. I lost sight of my identity is what I'm trying to say. I was living out of insecurity, inadequacy, and fear. I tell you that because it brings us all back to our need for Jesus. Guys, without this, forget about this. Do you see this? This is why this is not a text for unbelievers. This is not a text for unconverted people. Listen, nothing will make you more aware of your need for Jesus than trying to be the husband God calls you to be or the wife God calls you to be or the parent that God calls you to be or the child that God calls you to be. And praise God for that because you cannot exhaust his mercy. You cannot exhaust his grace. So just keep going back to it. Let the cross shape your identity. Keep going back and say, I am chosen despite my ugly black darkness inside of me. I am chosen. I am holy. I am loved. Let the gospel remind you that it's not about your ability to live out any of these things. It's about Jesus Christ's ability to transform your heart so that you'll start putting on your new clothing as a natural way to live out your new identity. That new identity will begin to flow outward from you, and guess what? It will begin to show up in some of those behaviors on the right-hand side. And here's the great thing. Just like these behaviors led to some really bad negative results for the family, these new behaviors will lead to some really great positive results for the family. The first thing is it will lead to is integrity. So in the place of deception, there will now be integrity. In the place of disunity, of what will it be? Unity. And in the place of separation, there will be peace. Guys, peace does not just mean no fighting. Peace means completion, wholeness, everything put together rightly. And, and you never get there fully this side of heaven, but your family can be a little preview of the world to come under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's true, it can, it can. And I know we're all so broken and busted up in these areas. So here's what I want you to know, rather than going home and saying, I've got to submit, or going home and saying, I've got to love, go home and dwell on your identity in Jesus Christ. You are chosen, you are loved, you are holy. Put your focus on that, put your emphasis on that. That's what it looks like to be transformed from the inside out. Now I'm going to get you started on this because we now get to celebrate the table together. I want to go ahead and ask the ushers to start passing the plates with the bread and the cup. And guys, this is not just a part of our worship service that we just get through. Do you see that the gospel is embodied in the bread and the cup. Do you feel hungry for grace this morning in light of the scripture that's fallen on us? Do you feel thirsty for renewal, for mercy? Then take the bread, take the cup, eat and drink. The table this morning is for all of us who find our needs exposed and are willing to come before Jesus Christ and say, I need you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me. I trust you, your life, your death, your resurrection. If that describes you this morning, take the bread, take the cup, 
And you're gonna hold on to it for a few minutes. And while you hold on to it and just reflect and pray and consider your identity in Jesus Christ, the band will play a song over us that has been chosen for today, for this moment, for us. Let's do this now together.